If you'd still like to apply to the Spectator's Economic Innovator of the Year Awards, there's time to do so. The deadline has now been extended to Friday the 23rd of June. Wherever you're based in the UK, we can't wait to hear about the successes of your business and the impact you're making on the economy and society in 2023. To learn more and apply, please visit spectator.co.uk forward slash innovator. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American power, politics and society. On each episode, I will talk to an American expert or an expert on America about something that's going on in America in 2023. I'm delighted to be joined today by Joel Kotkin, who is the Presidential Fellow in Urban Futures at Chapman University, and he's also Executive Director of the Urban Reform Institute, as well as the author of The Coming Neo-Feudalism, which is an extremely interesting book. And we're going to be talking about the death of the Silicon Valley dream, which is a, a very interesting article Joel wrote for The Spectator quite recently. But Joel, I thought I'd start with a bit of sort of more recent news, which is about the shopping centre chain Westfield pulling out oh, yes. of, of San Francisco, uh, because this relates to the death of the Silicon Valley dream uh, and a lot of what you've written about. Because uh, Westfield didn't say it so directly, but it, the reasons uh, were clear that it's because of rising crime, uh, a lack of consumer appetite. Uh, and this ties into a lot of other reports and statistics and figures we hear coming out of California and San Francisco in particular about the fact that it does seem to be an increasingly uncivilized and disastrous place to live in. Um, right. What What was your reaction to the news? Did, did, did it tie in with what a lot of what you're saying? Well, you know, what what's fascinating about this is, you know, and I, you know, I'm sort of a historian of cities, uh, is that there was a belief that the high-tech um, economy would turn around San Francisco, make it into a, a, a very successful city. Um, and in some ways it was, in terms of incomes, it, it's still very high. But what was missing was that the, the tech oligarchs are amazingly naive to, to stupid on, on issues relating to political and social life. I, a friend of mine who's a big developer in Silicon Valley once said, I have never met a group of people who are less aware of the impact that they have, that they mm. just don't get it. And so what happened in San Francisco is the tech oligarchs and their employees, maybe more importantly, all backed these sort of crazy policies, which made no sense in reality. But because you had a, a preponderance of either very wealthy people who were in some ways insulated or young people who are in their 20s, maybe early 30s, don't have children and are probably, you know, it's okay for them. They don't they don't mind it. Um, and as the crisis of San Francisco got worse and worse, I know the Bay Area pretty well because uh, I went to school up there. Plus, um, uh, my family has been there since at least the 1940s. So, you know, the, the reality is that... Um, they they had a chance to turn around a city that didn't work, mm. and with some exceptions, um, the tech people have not really contributed to making things a lot better in the Bay Area and particularly in San Francisco. And they have decided to side with po politics, which 
when you look at them, make no sense for for a, what are a group of very rabid capitalists do embrace. But but they have. And by the way, similar things have happened in Seattle, in Portland as well. Uh, in San Francisco is probably the most evident case. But it does seem that the tech oligarchs create an economy um, that is incredibly bifurcated be- between a relatively small group of very well compensated people and then a, a, a large group towards the bottom. You know, as one guy put it, it's uh, feudalism with better marketing. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, it is. It is. Uh, it does seem quite feudal. I suppose the difference would be the speed at which this superclass uh, established itself compared to the development of feudal societies. Um, they became very, very, very rich and very, very insulated from the rest of the community in which they live, or communities in which they live. How does that change the way it's feudal? I mean, how is it different to, to let's say, a medieval feudal society? What, what? If I, if I read, if, if I, I'm listening correctly, you know, basically what happened? The old Silicon Valley, which I covered from the very early days, you know, we're talking about late seventies, um, was, you know, there were people making money, but they weren't making this kind of money. And many of these companies, they manufactured here, they designed here, they marketed here. So there was a wide array of jobs for people at different skill levels that were, I mean, I remember the Valley being filled with Vietnamese boat people who had started PC board insertion shops. Um, As Silicon Valley became more and more sort of a Wall Street play and moved from a manufacturing focus to a exclusively a, so, a software focus, and in many cases, a software focus based on what I consider largely destructive social media kinds of activities, um, the opportunities for working class and, and middle class jobs began to decline. And so the Valley, which had been very egalitarian, became very, very feudalized, if you will. In addition, one important thing to keep in mind about as many as 70% of the tech workers are not even American citizens. And many of them are on short-term visas. So these people, um, you know, they, they're not, they're not going to be part of your long-term middle class in, the, in Silicon Valley. And then there's one other particular uh, issue, which is um, somewhat dicey, which is that you have many CEOs who don't really regard themselves predominantly as American. They see themselves as global players. Many of them come from other countries. And one of the great things about America is that we've been able to bring people from all over the world. But the downside is that whereas most immigrants, in my experience, are very patriotic and very you know, concerned about America, these people are existing on a higher level, sort of in a way, the way uh, people in the city of London or the people in Wall Street don't really care very much or aren't even aware of the people around them. Hmm. Um, I mean, how much time is is spent thinking about what's going on in Bradford when people are, are drinking after work in, in, in the city? I, I don't think they think about it very much. Places like Youngstown or or the south side of Chicago or south Los Angeles might as well not exist in their worldview because they have no contact with it. See, in the old days... Industry needed blue-collar workers. They needed 
motivated workers, perhaps not with with college degrees. These companies don't need those people. And when they go and have things like catering or or services, um, janitorial services, they they um, they generally uh, contract that out to people who are you know basically bottom feeders and they're not going to pay people very well. So th- this whole idea of the of the role of the corporation towards its own employees and who it hires has changed tremendously. And the other thing we have to remember is the enormous concentration of power and wealth in a handful of companies. I mean, if you look at this stock market recovery that we've had to date, it's almost all seven or eight companies. I mean, the you know, so that otherwise we're not putting money into companies that are doing productive things in many ways. We're putting our money into, you know, if we put our money into social media companies and companies that are, that that are investing in in uh, in search and AI, not that that's necessarily all bad, but it's not going to create a lot of jobs. And and one thing we know, and Robert Gordon's done a great job with this. Uh, historically, we've stopped seeing productivity growth. So normally, when technology improves, productivity goes way up. The Industrial Revolution in Great Britain is a is an example. The Industrial Revolution, the U.S., the 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 early stages of the high tech revolution, all raise productivity. Whatever we're doing now, whatever we're investing in now, is not necessarily making the country more equal, more uh, more amenable to upward mobility, and frankly, more competitive. Well, if if we compare them to nineteenth century industrialists. Um... And if we compare them to American examples like Rockefeller or Ford, as you as you write in your piece, Rockefeller and, and Ford were huge employers. They're also very driven by philanthropy and driven by uh, a Christian impulse and quite often a strong Christian faith. Whereas you say the the the, the current tech oligarchs, if you can use that word, their state religion is progressivism. Well, I think that the 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 current here's one big difference. The current oligarchs almost all come from sort of engineering or business, you know, MBA backgrounds. They don't seem to have a great interest in or knowledge of classical history, the Constitution, the history of the United States, much less the history of the world. I mean, that's why they, you know, they are even, they, they don't, they really don't know the basics of history. So you get, let's say, Sam Altman going up and saying, Oh, we should cooperate with China on artificial intelligence. Do you understand what this regime is? Do you know how they use this technology? But there's a kind of almost, I think when they were younger, it was endearing. The, the, the naivete was, was, but now these people have billions of dollars and they're in their 30s and 40s. I don't know. It's, it's kind of more dangerous than anything else. It's not, it's not cute. It's not amusing. And we have to remember that many of these companies have now been around for quite a long time, and they they have themselves become sort of corporate bureaucracies and inner focused in many ways. And and so they're not, you know, th- this is not the Silicon Valley of Hewlett Packard and Intel and National Semiconductor and you know where the I I knew you know those people Bob Noyce and people like that. And they were generally sort of Midwestern. Uh, engineers from a from a kind of working class American background. That's that's who built Silicon Valley. 
And those people don't exist anymore, pretty much. You mentioned the bureaucracy within these tech giants. There's been a lot of tech layoffs recently, and Elon Musk has been doing a fair bit of it at Twitter. And he's actually joked about how pretty much a, a lot of the people he was getting rid of were effectively useless. I wonder if you think that. <laughs> I wonder if you think that's true. I mean, a lot of these companies had so much money that they could just afford to hire a, a sort of bureaucratic class that weren't really doing anything to help the company grow or anything like that. Well, yeah. I mean, basically, I mean, you know, when you think about, you know, Musk lays off thousands of people on Twitter, you can't tell the difference. And here's even the bigger point. Many of these companies are still making money hand over fist, even with the layoffs. Clearly what happened is they had so much money, they they could hire people. And I also think there were a lot of the hires were, if you will, DEI um, hires. You know, they were hiring, you know, people to appease the the sort of a permanent uh, uh, sort of advocacy groups in the Bay Area who are very, very strong. And so you ended up with lots of people who worked in mar- not so much marketing as public relations or, you know, you know, some sort of form of equity or some sort of form of recruitment of, of particular groups. And I think that's where a lot of the cuts are. I don't think they're cutting the muscle. I don't think the reality is, you know, there was a w- wonderful set of pictures of Twitter staff and the original picture was taken before Musk took over. And it was, you know, this diverse sort of, you know, what you would expect to see on in a Netflix show. And then uh, now, and it, guess who it is? It's a bunch of basically white and Asian dudes who probably eat too much pizza, um, you know, and those are the people who built Silicon Valley. Yes. Um All these other people were sort of added on, sort of, you know, if you will, fed off the host. And then in some ways have so infected the host that the host still believes in things that absolutely make no sense at all and are not necessarily good for the country. But again, there's this disconnect, which we historically have seen with the financial community. Now we see it uh, with the tech community. You know, I can't tell you how exciting it was in the 70s and 80s to meet people who like Don Valentine, one of the leading venture capitalists, you know, was a guy who would wear atrocious clothing, um, you know, was a New York City ethnic kid from went to Fordham. And he just talked like, you know, like like you were sitting at a bar in Queens or something. Or, or, you know, it was those kind of people just are not there anymore. It. It's become more of the, you know, the great disease, which is Harvard MBAs and McKinsey consultants and people who, who you know, work for the big investment banks. And this is very different in, in personality from the people who were there before. I think Mike Malone, I uh, did a podcast with him the other day, and Mike Malone, one of the great writers about Silicon Valley, and he, he basically said, except for Tim Cook, almost none of the C- uh, CEOs comes from anything remotely close to a working class background. Mm. Is the problem then that universities or people with university degrees have taken over? I mean, because I suppose what you're saying is the early Silicon Valley, having that kind of education didn't matter at all. Well, there's no question that if you had to say where the axis of evil, if you think of as Stalinist progressivism as, as an evil, which I do as an old fashioned social Democrat, I find these people completely objectionable. 
but but if but if you but if you look at at, at what what's happened you know politically these are people who have um you know they just have no particular appreciation for you know how the order of society works um they they've become very distant um you know we've we've become in the classic sense kind of numbers functions tools of the of the tech um, oligarchs, but we're not really people anymore, and they don't really understand what's going on. That's why, for instance, they were so shocked when Trump won the first time around because they didn't know anyone who voted for Donald Trump, you know. But uh, but you know, and they didn't even know the parts of the country. And you see the same sort of phenomena uh, here in Southern California with Hollywood: this disconnect between what you might call this cognitive elite. And the vast majority of the people. That's why the country is, is such a mess. <laughs> yes, and you said in your piece that the the, poli- the politics in the early days of Silicon Valley were quite wide ranging, uh, right. and they now it seems to have calcified around this progressive state religion. Is that entirely true? I mean, it seems to me there still are libertarians there. You know, Peter Thiel is a very famous one who's maybe not a libertarian anymore, but, but- he certainly thinks very differently. Well, there, there there certainly are. I mean, you know, the, there's Ellison over at Oracle, um, but of course, he I think he spends most of his time in Hawaii. Um, yeah. Well, a lot of them have Musk gone to is, Texas, haven't they? Musk has moved to you know to Texas, basically. Yeah. Uh, you know, Peter Thiel's company is, he lives in L.A. The company is in, in in Denver. So what tends to happen is that the dissenting voices tend to leave the valley. Uh, some of them are staying, but most of them go. And the Bay Area, which has always been more liberal that historically, let's say, than Southern California, and certainly than the interior, but the Bay Area has almost become a Republican-free zone. In the old days, you know, you got to remember David Packard, was, uh, you know, served in the cabinet for a Republican president. You had, you had m- many. Nobody would have thought in nineteen, you know, eighty-five that. Silicon Valley was a was you know a slam dunk for for progressive Democrats. And the other thing that happened is there used to be a lot of people who were Democrats in Silicon Valley, but were moderate Democrats. You know, obviously they were business people. They were concerned about regulations and taxes and things like that. They uh, have been pushed to the side. The Democratic Party today is basically a uh, controlled by the public employee unions. And to a large extent, the, the green nonprofits who are themselves funded by the oligarchs, and that's really where the pressure comes from. And th- there, you know, there used to be a whole bunch of legislators and even Congress people from uh, the Silicon Valley who were Republicans, uh, usually fairly moderate Republicans. You didn't get the sort of you know John Bircher kind of Republican, but. It was a two-party system. I am a great believer that a healthy two-party system creates best results. And what we've have in the in California in general and the Bay Area in particular is just one political party, where the vast majority of, of the power um, is in you know people who have this particular progressive agenda on things like race, gender, the environment, and they have almost complete control over what happens in the state. Um, and Silicon Valley has decided to go along with it. Now, of course, you know, they're not building a lot of new factories here. 
so they don't have to deal with the 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 high cost of electricity as much. And as they need fewer people, and I think AI will accelerate this, they will need fewer, although very skilled and very well-paid people. They don't have to worry about about things like they used to. You know, it reminded me in New York City years ago, I interviewed Walter Riston, who was the head of, uh, of what became Citibank. And Walter said something very profound to me. He said, when we became focused on investment banking and elite functions, we didn't care anymore about the New York City public schools. Mm-hmm. That used to be where our tellers came from. That's where our trainees came from. He said, now we just get people from Harvard, Yale, you know, Oxford, wherever, um, and we don't care. So the separation of the elites from the population is very profound. And as we move into the era of AI and we move more and more to a uh, to a software-dominated tech sector, certainly here in California, what you're going to see is, again, more concentration of wealth and fewer hands and fewer opportunities for everyone else. Uh, and one of the things people are focused on in Silicon Valley seems to be censorship, and that spreads way outside the state uh, and all over the world because quite a few people very high up in tech seem to be quite happy to go along with censorship of anything outside of quite a narrow progressivist worldview. Well, you know, first of all, censorship flourishes when there's groupthink. If enough people believe that only one thing is right, and, you know, in the classic sense, you know, the science is settled no matter what the topic is, like, oh, no, there aren't two sexes. There are 355 million. You know, who knows? You know, if you can continually, you know, redefine things, and if you can, if you are sensitive largely to pressure from these uh, progressive nonprofits and, and uh, you know, well, some people call them astroturf groups, you know, the Tom Steyers of the world put $10 million to make sure that, you know, nothing, you know, no blue collar jobs are created in the Central Valley. You know, that, that kind that kind of stuff is, 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 is pretty widespread. And, and so what you get, and this is also a problem of a country where people with a, uh, particularly with engineering and to some extent uh, uh, data science backgrounds, they tend to see the world in this zero one relationship. They don't see the nuances. They don't understand the history. They don't, they, you know, they, they have very, very, they, they, there's a right and a wrong. And the censorship that was going on and the collusion with the FBI and the CIA is something that the old Silicon Valley would have never done. It would never have been at that level. And so I think what, what we're seeing is that these people are living in a soup that has a particular flavor and they have to reflect that, that, that flavor. Unfortunately, there used to be a very nice tension in Silicon Valley between kind of techno utopian progressive types and libertarian types, but there's less and less of that now. I mean, and again, as these companies have become gigantic, their entrepreneurial roots are really behind them and they behave like oligarchs, which is what they are. And, you know, like we see this right now with AI, instead of seeing a bunch of young companies that are going to change the nature of, of the internet, these are mostly companies funded by 
the tech giants themselves, and they're basically R&D labs for the, 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 the big tech companies. No one expects there's going to be a, a, a new Google coming out of AI or a new Apple coming out, out of an AI. So, so we've created this structure, which I compare to the Japanese Zaibatsu before the Second World War or the old uh, German cartels. And that's where we're moving. And the, this, this, the dominance of market sectors, in many cases, 80, 90% market uh, domination by one company can't possibly be healthy. Um, well, do you think they need to be broken up, which would be one obvious solution by, by governments? Or do you think that there is the possibility or hope of some kind of reformation or renaissance? Because as touched on before, you have figures like Musk, you have figures like Peter Thiel. You have, I think, Mark Andreessen, who are interested in the arts, they're interested in free speech, and they're interested in spirituality to a certain extent. Do you think there's a possibility that uh, Silicon Valley will sort of grow a conscience? I mean, whether there's an alternative or is there a, a way out of this? Yes, I'm looking for optimism. <laughs> okay, I think I think there are several things. One, I do think you need to deal with antitrust. You just can't have gigantic markets with 80-90% market share. Either that or you have to have them regulated as utilities, as Mike Lind and others have suggested. I mean, you just you just can't have it. I mean, could you imagine having a, a, a company that controls, let's say, all the electricity and having it not regulated? And of course, the, the other thing is we have to be very careful uh, to make sure that these companies are not colluding with the government, uh, as they have clearly been doing, um, as you know, Jake Siegel and others have pointed out, that has to be cracked down on. What I find astounding is how many one-time liberals are now in favor of censorship. You know, they used to hate the FBI, now they love the FBI. I, I think that that certainly there needs to be uh, ways of working against that. And then I, I think that 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 um, we have to really look at, at at how do we encourage new startup companies and prevent these companies from, as one uh, guy put it, they're sort of like these tech companies are like the Borg, you know, either either you know, you know, resistance is futile. You have to play their game, and we can't have that situation. I, you know, what what. Sometimes I and I think libertarians and and free market fundamentalists sometimes miss the point here, which is in reality, you know, capitalism isn't really about just some sort of abstraction on a board that some, you know, highly educated professor writes. And yes, that that it's that, but the but capitalism, as Lenin said, is is is, is most uh, powerful at the village level, at the marketplace level. Um, at the aspirational level, hmm. and we we are destroying that. And if so, my feeling is, if I'm going to have essentially a corporate socialist future, why not have a socialist socialist future? Why should I? Why should I have a world that rewards you know Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg and you know a handful of people and doesn't do a hell of a lot of good for society? I think capitalism is best if an innovation is best. When there's a lot of players, people are insecure. You know, when when I used to cover Silicon Valley uh, in the seventies uh, and eighties, everybody was afraid of who 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 was who was coming behind them, and that's what drove this enormous uh, innovation. Mm. 
I got to say, do you really think that that Microsoft programs are better now than they were 15, 20 years ago? You think Google is better now than it was? I would argue it's not. As a researcher, I find Google to be either uh, oriented towards its commercial clients or politically. It, it, you know, I'll ask a very direct question and I'll just get, you know, if I want to get a, something contrary to, to the party line, I got to go to the fifth or sixth page. So, you know, it's not like things are, you know, that they're making things better. And I think if there was more competition, if people were more concerned about other companies, and look, we see how this can work. The auto industry, which used to be very much an oligopoly, because of foreign competition in particular, there's now huge competition in the auto industry. And, and there's no question that an auto built two years ago is, in many ways, a much better car than, the, than from 10 years ago. Mm. I don't think necessarily the, the operating system software of today is, is much better than the operating system software that we had before. Well, I suppose that's where AI might come in for, for, for the good as well as for the bad, in that that really is where progress seems to be going in terms of technological progress. Well, I, I would say a couple of things about AI. I'm very in favor of AI applied to making things work better. The problem is that what the one organ that it's not helping is the human brain. You know, uh, you... Like, for instance, I, I teach at uh, Chapman University um, and I have a couple of classes and I'm going back to blue books, you know, to the writing. Because I this year, for the first time, I started getting answers that were clearly not written by the students. I could just tell by the paragraphing and by how. But the other thing is they don't even know where the stuff comes from. And when we look at some of the, the chat stuff, it's actually inaccurate. Mm. And sometimes things are made up and, and, and there's also clearly the algorithmic, um, what, what my, my friend in Silicon Valley calls it computational autocracy, you know, that's, that's coming to play and it's coming to play with AI. And what's even worse in many ways, worse than Google, Google may be slanted. AI will give you the answers and you think that they're accurate and they may be inaccurate. They may miss the nuance. Um, and what really worries me, and I see this with younger people in particular, oh, I don't have to read that book. I'll just ask, you know, summaries from Google, and now I can can write my my answers on my paper. So, like, you know, I'm going back to the, you know, I, you know, I'm, they're lucky I'm not going back to cuneiform tablets. Um, you know, I mean, it, it's like the the fact that I thought that the technology would allow us to get better. And the technology right now is regressive. It's moving us uh, in a very, very dangerous direction. And what worries me the most is that young people are losing the connection to the original material. You know, they don't read nearly as much as they as, as we did. I, I mean, I remember, you know, when I went, uh, I went to school. You know, because a long time ago, you know, it wasn't unusual to have eight or nine books for a semester. If I have two or three now, I'm lucky if one of them gets read by five students. Mm. Um, and it's not their fault. And it's not, you know, my school, it's it's what's happening. And so what we're, we're beginning to see is, is that I think there are some efficiencies that could be gotten there. But the, the more 
directed the technology, the more it begins to replace all the things that, that we value with humans, it, it's not going to end up very nicely. It, what we're going to end up with is a society, you know, which is largely run by algorithms and um, those who control and develop the algorithms will be enormously powerful and, and in many cases, enormously wealthy. <laughs> uh, and the rest of us will be, you know, sort of like peasants in the Middle Ages. I think, well, I mean, it's certainly true about AI getting stuff very wrong. I've noticed that, that it makes really quite bad mistakes very confidently. And I wonder whether it's the only solution then for regulation that, that punishes companies that get whose algorithms get things wrong. Well, regulation is, of course, a big, a big factor. And one of the reasons that one of the things pushing this consolidation, because big companies have the money, the people, the ability. If you say your board of directors has to be of this, these kinds of people, well, if if I'm if I'm you know Meta or Google, I can deal with it. If I have to fill out page after page after page on labor and, and page after page on environmental, I'm a big company. I can do it. If I'm a small startup company and I'm trying to get off the ground and I'm stuck with all the all this uh, uh, regulatory um, uh, barriers. It's, it, it isn't worth it. I mean, in, in California today, it's questionable whether you can even hire contract workers. There, you know, there's attempts to make that difficult. Mm. Um, you know, and that's one of the key ways startup companies get going. So, you know, I, I think the regulatory, um, uh, there's an odd thing. Historically, business opposed regulation on principle. Sometimes it justified, sometimes not. Today, big businesses actually like regulation. The the platforms would like nothing better than a misinformation czarina, uh, given you know probably who would get appointed, um, who would um, uh, basically be able to join them in in censoring opinions they don't like, mm. um, and 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 cutting off know, cutting off rivals. The little startup can't do that. Yes, and cutting off rivals at the knees at the same time. Um, you mentioned that socialism, you know, if people are given the choice between sort of serfdom and socialism, I think you didn't quite put it like that, but they'll choose socialism. Is that where in, uh, if we're still a democratic society in a few years' time, is that where democratic society inevitably heads then, is towards what people on the left have described as fully luxury, fully automated luxury communism? Well, here's what what I see. The, the oligarchs know in large amount that the society they're, they're creating is not sustainable in the current form. In other words, you can have, as we have in California, the biggest concentration of wealth in the history of the world and the highest rate of poverty in the United States at the same time. It, it's not stable. And so they, they, some of them have said, well, we'll have a guaranteed income, you know, 2000 a month, 3000 a month, Besides the fact that, of course, would mean that the what's left of the middle class would get taxed into oblivion. The other, the other uh, big issue is that people in will begin to say, "Well, wait a minute, it's two thousand a month, but you, but you're worth three hundred billion. Why don't we make it three thousand a month?" And then, you know, and so at some point they're going to say, "This this wealth is a social good, and why don't we just get rid of the oligarchs themselves?" 
if we have five or six platforms that are dominant, you know, have them serve, uh, you know, give money to people so they don't have to do anything. That's a, this, this, uh, I think rather bizarre, but in some ways charming idea of, of fully automated luxury communism. Um, I mean, that's where you're going to end up with. If you begin to tell people that capitalism at the grassroots level does not work, then you're going to get a different, you're going to get a, a, a result that you don't like. And of course, we already can see this uh, beginnings of this. If you look at, at some of the European economies where a handful of very big companies are completely dominant, they don't change very much over the years. And they live perfectly well with the regulatory state and, and are often joined at the hip. And I think that's that's where we're headed. My hope is that Americans in particular are not willing to um, to embrace this kind of future. And that that now what I think is also happening is some of the young, ambitious tech people are saying, I'm getting out of Silicon Valley. I'm going to go to someplace else where costs are lower, the regulation is less. Um and where I can recruit people because they can afford to live there. I mean, I still think you know it's it's not a closed book yet. I think it's, but but it, it it's closing but not closed. And the question is, can we reverse this process? Because at the end of the day, what we end up with at the current rate is essentially two dominant um, algorithmic or or computational autocracies, um, I like that term. Um, and that is the Chinese model where it's the government on top and all the companies service the government in their objectives. And in, and in the America where the, the, the private interests have much more power, but they are increasingly colluding with the government. I mean, it's, you know, as, as I, I, I mentioned, we now have, um, American capitalism with Chinese characteristics. <laughs> on that uh, rather depressing note, we shall end it. But Joel, thank you very much for coming on to Americana. And I do hope we'll get you on again. Well, I, I just want to just stress the, the, the system can re- replace itself. We did get out of the era of the great trusts. We, 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 we have seen the, the revival of entrepreneurism uh, in the 70s and 80s. It's not a hopeless case. But we have to understand that if we don't reverse course soon, we will be headed towards a feudal future. Brilliant. Well, a little bit more cheer there. Thank you very much, Joel. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to the Americano podcast. I would like to thank my brilliant producer, Natasha Faroz, and the rest of the Spectators broadcast team. If you like the podcast, please leave a review on whatever platform you are listening to us on. Thank you very much. God bless America.